0: By listening to her story, I felt moral injury from kind of lamenting the stressors in her life, lamenting the issues she had to navigate in a system that were not matching the ideal version of care for her. These things can be small, but meaningful when you're expectation and reality don't match up.
1: That is the voice of today's guest, Dr. Kim Bombach, and you are listening to The Stimulus Podcast. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the show where we break down ideas, strategies, tactics, habits, mindsets, and the micro and macro moves. It's a new one (laughs) to help you get unstuck, unburnt, flourish, and thrive. My name is Rob Orman. I spent 20 years as an emergency physician, and now I am a physician coach as well as purveyor of this podcast. And I am joined today by one of my favorite people, a perennial stimulus podcast favorite of yours. You heard her in the cold open. She is an assistant professor of emergency medicine at The Ohio State University. And she is also the assistant director of the Keel Resident Wellbeing Endowment, which is a BFD, that is a big freaking deal. Dr. Kim Bombach, what a delight.
0: Hey, thanks, Rob. Thank you, friend. I so appreciate your time. I knew as this concept of moral injury was marinating in my mind, I'm like, I want to talk to Rob about this so badly. He's going to have so many insights and, and we can hash this out together. All right. A couple
1: things before we get into our main chat for today. And listeners, If you are listening to this in your podcatcher, Spotify or Apple Podcasts, whatever, you will see that this episode is the first one ever with chapters and timestamps, and that will allow you to go back to parts of the show that interest you or skip forward to parts of the show that look interesting if, if, if this doesn't, without having to scroll through or find it. And I know that this works on Spotify or Apple. I'm not so sure about Overcast and all the rest, but check it out. And let me know if this is a value to you. I'm trying this out as a beta function. It's a new feature on stimulus, but... Oh, that's really cool. Oh, thank you. We'll see see what the listenership has to say. Next, have gotten several emails over the past week. I'm not sure why this week was the week, but <laughs> that asked if we do group coaching. Yes, absolutely. Actually, it's probably the main type of coaching that... We're doing now, sometimes it's an ED group that wants either their group or their leadership to go through a cohort, or sometimes we travel to the groups and give workshops there. Either way, you know what, if you're interested, the answer is yes, you can just contact me through the website. And before we jump in, here's another little bit of goodness. Your job is hard. You got to know a lot of stuff. You got to be able to figure out a lot of things in a short period of time. And the job is also hard on you. And there's an entire aspect of training that doesn't address this. Things like navigating difficult conversations, creating the mindset you want, staying cool under pressure, regulating your nervous system, effectively dealing with stress. And for that matter, dealing with that inner perfectionist that can seem like such a pain in the butt. And that is just a tip of the iceberg of what we are covering at Awake and Aware. In person, Bend, Oregon, May 1st through 3rd this year, 2024. Awaken Aware is a CME event because that is an important thing to know. So join me, Ryan Chaney, Scott Weingart, and a cadre of physician coaches in person, Bend, Oregon, May 1st through 3rd. There's a link to the Awaken Aware website where you can take a look at the curriculum, who all the speakers are, all the good stuff in the show notes for this pod. And I'll finish with this. There is a better way. It doesn't have to be the same crap. Day after day. So we'll see you there at Awake and Aware. And I realized that rhymed. It wasn't intentional, but I'm keeping it in because it was kind of cool. All right, Kim, we are talking about moral injury. And it really entered the medical lexicon relatively recently. And I think we both find this a compelling idea. It's mm-hmm. not, this, not a beautiful thing, but just the concept of it really grabs you.
0: I feel like it gives us the vocabulary to describe something that's so deeply felt when you're working in healthcare, trying to provide the best care for patients that maybe burnout doesn't capture. Moral injury. It is something that we carry with us and it's got this raw character to it. It's part of the lived experience. And just to expand on that concept that not every negative emotion or every challenge is necessarily burnout, I think it just enriches our vocabulary around the experience of practicing medicine in a way that if you take nothing else from this podcast, having that in your vocabulary can really make you feel understood in those tough times.
1: So this term has been around for a long time. I'm not sure exactly when it happened. It was it ha- it was something to do with war. Was it like World War II or Korea or Vietnam when did
0: it come around? So it came into common usage during the Vietnam War, and it initially was used in an exclusively military context. So, describing the emotional wound that a soldier might experience when, in the course of war, or bearing witness to the cruelty of war. They transgress their own values or witness acts that transgress their own values. I mean, you can imagine any number of horrendous things of civilian casualties or any harming another person, which might deeply transgress your values, but be something that you do in the line of duty. It was distinct from PTSD, which is a totally separate discussion, but closely related in the sense that there's the morally injurious event that might occur. And maybe it doesn't progress to pathology that is a medical condition or interferes with your daily life to such a profound extent that hypervigilance, hyperarousal, and fear-based experience that somebody with PTSD has. But despite that fact, the injury that it created, the lasting impact on the psyche of of servicemen and women was recognized as a result of the Vietnam War in this coming into our vocabulary.
1: I want to pause on the PTSD aspect of this because the injury part of this, right, is moral mm-hmm. injury trauma, and so yeah. it's can be cumulative, and it absolutely can contribute to PTSD or just this sense of accumulated non-processed trauma, and as I say that, I mean, this came up in the Vietnam War. Did you ever read the book, The Things They Carried?
0: No, I haven't. Tell me about it. Yeah.
1: So th- this took place in the Vietnam War and there's the first level of this, oh, here's things that people carry with them. But these transgressions of values, when mm. that happens, that's the thing that you carry. And whenever I think about moral injury, Actually, I didn't know that it came up in the Vietnam War. I think about that book and I think, yeah, you you carry that with you and you carry it. And and we're going to get into a toolkit of how to manage this and what to do about this. But it does start weighting down that backpack.
0: It's absolutely a mental weight.
1: Let's define what we're talking about. We've defined it some, and you talked about it in the context of the Vietnam War, but we've had decades since then to hammer out. What it is, and have the psychology universe put constraints and definitions around this. So, what
0: exactly are we talking about? The psychological distress that is caused by action or inaction that results in a violation of your moral or ethical code, those deepest held beliefs that you have. Maybe that's your oath as a physician. Maybe that's Betrayal of your identity in a way. So, Brett Litz, he is a professor at Boston University in the Department of Psychology and Psychiatry. And he describes it as the lasting psychological, biological, spiritual, behavioral, and social impact of perpetrating, failing to prevent, or bearing witness to acts that transgress deeply held moral beliefs and expectations. I think that's so succinct and captures. So many aspects of this experience, but have you ever cared for a patient and felt like a failure because you couldn't provide the care that you were trained to provide, or you felt was right for the patient, or felt like you didn't live up to your profession or your calling, or said, Hey, we did the best we could, but you didn't feel good about it because it still wasn't the best for the patient? That's what I'm talking about when I say moral injury
1: the bearing witness and also perpetrating is such a big part of it in medicine and i can remember ordering a cat scan an abdominal mm-hmm. cat scan on a young person it's just such a small thing it was just part of the if you don't do this you're going to put yourself at you know, risk litigation is, risk yeah. yeah and this is before the days of really embracing shared decision making it was just hey yeah we're just going to get a scan and the cya and rule this out and I can remember thinking, is this how it is? And I'm doing this thing and I don't feel good about this, but I'm still doing it because I'm afraid of getting sued and afraid of getting sued as being part of the whole thing. And that was such a burden to carry. And I, and I was injuring patients with that. We do. You, one does injure patients with radiation. And yeah. That and one of the what came out of that later was like, you know what? I'm just shared decision making talking about all this because I actually want to irradiate a lot less, even though if you do this, you put them in the magic box and get that answer, you're gonna have yourself covered and then radiologists will interpret all. No. It was I cannot practice in a way where I'm doing this thing that I just
0: do not see as right. Absolutely. I have had the same experience. A lot of times in my mind, I've got this short window with you. I've got this short window. Otherwise, you may be lost to the wind and not come back if a if a condition worsens and I feel like this is my one shot. So there's this tremendous amount of pressure that we put on ourselves to get to the right diagnosis, exclude the emergent diagnosis. But ultimately, our Protecting ourselves in a way and behaving in a way that's maybe against our medical judgment. So, like, you don't think that person has a surgical abdomen. I I love how you mentioned shared decision making. Like, that can definitely mitigate that injury by being transparent and being what I heard you say is you're being very authentic with your patients and that authenticity. Do you think that's protective?
1: Well, yeah, that was a, a former life, but you bring up something I think really key here. And if someone is listening to this show, then they are exploring what's going on inside them. I, I think that it self selects for that or are interested in that.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
1: clinicians are taught to face outward, treating, stabilizing, addressing the needs of others. And I think what you're saying is that a real takeaway here is to acknowledge when you are suffering, treat yourself with some compassion and just take a look at that situation.
0: And acknowledging the feelings that you have in the clinical space. I'm feeling guilt. I'm feeling betrayed. I'm feeling inadequate. I'm disappointed. I feel shame. I think shame is such a big one when it comes to moral injury. Maybe you feel anger at not having the resources in your practice setting that are right for your patients. Acknowledging those feelings and not berating yourself for having them just because you're a clinician doesn't mean you don't have those feelings or you shouldn't acknowledge them and look inward as you practice outward. Help me
1: tease these two apart. So there's this moral injury, but how how does that differ from just distress? I don't maybe I maybe call it moral distress but just distress mm. about these things.
0: No, moral distress is, is absolutely a term. So I think of moral distress as the punch. Sometimes you can't avoid that you're going to be punched. Maybe you do everything in your power <laughs> to be in a system or a profession where you're going to be punched less frequently, but the moral distress is the friction. The moral injury is the bruise. The you the distress has occurred, you've been punched, and it's left a mark on you. And then it crosses the threshold to that bruise is impairing your functioning and your ability to navigate daily life.
1: What would be an example of a situation that you face or one might face in this environment where here's an event that is distressing but it's a punch and then how that evolves into a bruise
0: i'll give you an example from from my daily life and this is not a comment on my institution this is a nationwide crisis in emergency medicine that boarding is a major problem and that means longer wait times. And the waiting room is the space for me that intersects with my life. You are making triage decisions about who gets the next bed, and patients are waiting for your care. So I'll give you an example a moral injury might occur from you work in an emergency department that has prolonged wait times, and that patient has been waiting with a surgical abdomen for six hours and their care has been delayed and maybe some harm has come from it. Maybe there's a bad patient outcome or there's not, but it wasn't ideal. Maybe you had to say no to somebody going back to the next room because you had to take the sicker person back first. So resource allocation. And a lot of times it's your time. It's your attention. Maybe you have to spend less time with the patient who's struggling with substance use disorder and wants to talk to you about that because you need to go intubate the person in room three because they're sicker right now and they need more of your time and your resources and your attention.
1: So there's a spectrum. The same event can be processed differently by different people. And at the core, so there's this this discordance between what you're capable of And what's within your capacity, given the circumstances. And so much of this has to do with hopelessness and helplessness and feeling that there's nothing you can do about it. And I was talking to a flight paramedic, and he was getting into this situation of flying patients in his helicopter from rural settings to a tertiary care center with a finger infection. And this is someone who could be easily driven. But everybody who's in the thing says, "Ah, put put him on the helicopter. So there's $60,000 for a finger infection. And it happens over and over again. And you're part of the system that is dysfunctional and you're working contrary to your values.
0: Maybe you make the decision to also engage in that dysfunction to get just to get something done for your patient, right? (laughs) Yeah. You're calling for the helicopter, too, because that's what everybody's doing.
1: Right. And it, so it, it brings up this idea of what can you do? What is in your control? And you know, we, we, we talk about what's in your control what's not in your control. That's agency. The ability to take action. There's two types of agency. There's the internal agency, which is mindset. And that would be an example would be agency of acceptance. And Then there's agency of action. What can you do and what are you going to do about it? The only things we can control, values, judgments, opinions, and initiation of action. And when we're thinking about things like this, these injurious things and the flying the finger infections, a systemic issue, I see this as two circles. There's your immediate circle, the things that you can do, which are independent of anyone else and independent of the system. What can I do? I can give this patient with this finger infection the best possible care. I can be compassionate. I can listen. It's a shift of mindset from this is so bad. I want no part of it to I don't like how this system functions and how people are treated within it from hopelessness and helplessness to kind of a micro action. And an important shift here is keeping a proper polarity of expectation. An aspiration the suffering of moral injury the injury happens when expectation isn't met if an aspiration doesn't happen oh well (laughs) it's it was an aspiration after all Mm -hmm. if your expectation isn't aligned with what's actually happening then you get frustrated and angry and so a question to ask as we're in this medical milieu is can you do enough good to keep doing this work? Can you do enough good to keep doing this work? That's not to say be passive, just take it. it. It actually doesn't say that at all. But understanding that the ideal or this improved state is an aspiration. Waiting room medicine. That should not be, that should not. But you know what? It's happened and that is the new reality. So if your expectation is that there will be no waiting room medicine or boarding patients, it will be continual frustration. Mm -hmm. That can be an aspiration. If your expectation is, hey, waiting room medicine, boarded patients, what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do about that internally? And then what am I going to do about it externally? So we've got our small circle, and then the bigger circle is the system circle. They can get really large. And it can be intimidating in its scope. As soon as you start acting outside yourself, what are the things that I can do? To what are the things, how can I influence a system? But it doesn't have to be massive in scope. What can I change as far as protocols, procedures? What do I want to put the effort into maybe on a hospital level? Ooh, am I willing to do that? Do I want to do that on a regional or national level? And the further you get in that circle, that big circle, the less control you have. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes, as we know, the, the further out you get, the more impact you have on the whole system in the long run. And what am, where am I willing to put in the effort? And it's a lot of effort.
0: I really appreciate you outlining those two spheres. One thing that I want to come back to, though, is so often this incongruence has to do with a financial mm. incentive. A lot of the morally injurious events that clinicians experience have to do with pressures related to a hospital or health system's bottom line, insurers, metrics, RVUs, press gainy scores, things like that. I do think that there are instances where you're going to have moral distress or moral injury related to intrinsic features of the job. But I do want to highlight that a lot of times it is related to a malalignment of financial incentives and not obligation to the patient. What do you think about that?
1: Yes. I think that there's a couple of things in there to tease apart. We see these motivations and they're just such discordance with how we think things ought to be <laughs> with our expectations. And but let me back that up a little bit. And, and think this through. So we want at least some control over what happens where we work. And when it's there, it's positive. When it's not there, it's negative. Most clinicians think or feel, and we're talking about the financial incentives, we're talking about administrators. Most folks think that administrators make work more difficult for them and that the decisions made by administrators or these financial incentives seem so random or nonsensical or antithetical to how medicine should be practiced. Now, of course, administrators have their own motivations, but are usually not seen in a collaborative light. We've probably worked with a few servant leaders over the years, but fewer and far between, but those hospitals do have incredible culture. And with this financial incentive, everybody got to make money. That's okay. But I think what you run into is a meaning discordance. I don't know if that's a real term, meaning discordance. Maybe we'll, here we go. Copyright 2024. Most clinicians have a profound internal compass driven by meaning and purpose so be, to help and to be an excellent clinician. And what they don't like, I've never heard anyone say this in a positive way. They feel like a cog in the machine. I'm just a cog in the machine and they're just trying to, they're just making the money, not treated in the right way and if you spend most of your time doing something that is meaningful to you or important to you in a way that aligns with your values you're less likely to be burnt you're less likely to be injured if you spend less time doing the meaningful things and that time is replaced by stuff in a way that is discordant there's a meaning discordance or is injurious to you or it's kind of a financial incentive that's just a bunch of bs you're more likely to be burnt or injured right it is draining physically emotionally spiritually and with this financial motivation what I think happens is that people see that their organizations are not supportive of the mm-hmm. things that are important. And when that happens, when people perceive that their organizations are not supportive, they experience higher levels of vicarious trauma or what you could say is moral injury. I want to introduce you to a special tool that i've developed over the years working with physician clients it's called the driveway debrief and it's now available for free to you what's this all about well you are accustomed to high intensity work days our understatement of the year where your brain is continually on you're juggling hundreds of tasks and probably thousands of decisions and shifting from this work mode to home mode isn't easy. And as a result, you might find yourself disengaged or not fully present with loved ones. It's hard to walk in the door and just be there. Or maybe you're unwinding with hours of TV because your mind just can't settle down. The driveway debrief addresses this. It's a 10 minute guided exercise aimed at dialing down your sympathetic nervous system processing the day and creating a clear boundary between your work life and your home life. This tool has been a game changer for my clients. And I think you'll find it useful as well. There is a link to the driveway debrief in the show notes for this episode. You can also find it on our free resources page alongside our other tools. And I set up the driveway debrief so it's accessible in your podcast app. Oh yeah, so you don't have to go hunting for it when you wanna use it. Leave work at work and shed the residue of the day. Check it out, driveway debrief. Let me know how it goes.
0: One other aspect of this, we've touched on the financial aspect and that a lot of this has to do with resource allocation. There are some things that have to do with intrinsic stresses of the job. There are some morally injurious events that have to do with that meaning mismatch or motivation mismatch within your system. But another I ha- I thought about was a mismatch between our deep personal sacrifices related to the medical training. And COVID really comes to mind. I have to mention COVID in this discussion. So choosing to separate from family during COVID is something that you may feel incongruent with your role as a physician. And I think COVID exacerbated a lot of the stressors that we've already mentioned and has played such a huge role in terms of the canary was already in the coal mine, but now it is entering our lexicon for a reason.
1: I think a question that comes up that many individual clinicians ask themselves, is this what I signed up for? Is this why I put in all those years? Is this what all the sacrifices
0: for? Is this? Your expectation didn't match. And you mentioned what we can do about it. And I think that we all have this urge to withdraw when you feel that guilt and shame. And is there some perfect evidence-based cure-all? No, unfortunately, there's not. But we do have agency and one aspect of that agency is talking about it with your colleagues and displaying that vulnerability, especially if you're in a position of power and signaling to others that's a psychologically safe space and making it a common practice to discuss these feelings surrounding morally injurious event can help you decompress and maybe also help you process the event and then translate it into those other systemic changes that you mentioned, which can have a larger impact. But I think processing it together is another tool in your toolkit.
1: Let's get into the toolkit. And yeah, yeah so we've got these events which a bad patient outcome these difficult triage decisions of waiting room medicine resource allocation end of life care the health and well-being of the clinicians families and what you're talking about with community with talking about it with awareness and acceptance as is happening what we're really talking about is resilience yeah and resilience is oftentimes thought of as this bravado of I can push through this and I can work through this, but really it's the tools of how do you process this in a healthy way? And that's why two different people can experience the same event. One person can come through it without injury or trauma and the other deeply traumatized, deep moral injury from it. So you're talking about communication, acknowledging it, And many other ways to process this. So we've mentioned agency so many times. If you can fully embrace this, what is actually in my control here? And acting only on what's in your control. Values, judgments, opinions, and initiation of action. And I want to talk about that last one, that initiation of action a little bit. So there's all of these things which are so irritating as part of the system, You think. It's friction. You mentioned friction before. I see this as a problem and this is where I want to put my effort in. And then you do this thing and you call the director of this and that director that and they say, oh yeah, okay, we'll fix it. And nothing happens. And you call them again oh, nothing, and nothing happens. Nobody does anything. And you start banging your head against the wall. And you think this is just increasing my frustration. That's not the right way to go about it. The right way to go about it is say, all right, here's the problem. Let me get some stakeholders involved and see what's a potential solution. You can't just say, hey, fix this thing. Got to get stakeholders involved. And then you take one step and you say, did it work? Did it not? What went well? What didn't? What were the obstacles? And then you adjust and then you move forward with that adjustment and you experiment. For example, one thing that happens in many hospitals is people get continual calls for results that are not critical. And it just is continual interruptions. And so they try to stop that. They talk to their director. They talk to the other directors doing this. They say, hey, can we stop this? And say, Oh, yeah, this is a big problem. And it never stops. And then they call again. They say, hey, can we stop this? And it never stops. And again and again. And there is absolutely agency that you are initiating action there. But if you're doing the same thing over and over again, that's actually going to make things worse. And so don't consider it that it's only results oriented, that those initiations of action are data collection and iterations of moving things forward. So there is our internal agency, which is our mindset. There is that external agency of making change in the small sphere or in the big sphere, but don't lose heart or make problems worse by saying, I can only do this one thing. No one's listening to me. It's so frustrating. You're only collecting data. You also cannot control what they do. You can only control your initiation of it.
0: One other thing, when it comes to agency, that, that I really liked from the SAM Wellness Committee, is participating in politics. So I feel like so often as clinicians, we're operating in a apolitical sense when it comes to actual patient care. But I love the suggestion to actually use your role with those critical stakeholders and. Get involved in the political process beyond voting. Maybe that relates to your professional organization or initiatives, whatever it is that really matters to you, maybe if it's related to gun violence, or maybe it is advocating for universal health care if that's something that you believe in. But I thought that was such a interesting suggestion to feel momentum towards those root values that you feel are being transgressed that I wouldn't have thought of right off the bat.
1: My head is totally spinning in the best possible way. There's an article. It was written by Wendy Dean and a couple of others. And
0: yeah. Oh, yeah. I love Wendy Dean, by the ah, way.
1: So this is in Federal Practitioner, right? The journal that we all subscribe to, Federal Practitioner. and <laughs> And they talk about these systemic things to mm-hmm. limit moral injury. And so you know, talk about bringing the two sides together, administrators and clinicians, making clinician satisfaction a financial priority, reestablishing a sense of community among clinicians, as you said. And another thing that they say is make sure every physician leader has and uses the cell phone number of his or her legislators. Now that was entered as a systemic change, but you're talking about it individually. That's a It's just coming out of that small circle, getting into the big circle. I never thought of it before.
0: Yeah. I think just remembering that moral injury is those core values being transgressed. How can I strengthen the core value or realign with that ruptured identity? So if I feel like I wasn't a compassionate physician today because I couldn't spend time talking with this patient. How am I going to reconnect with my compassion and be intentional about it? I think the politics idea is one way to get at those root values, but certainly not the only way. And just having that mindfulness that you want to connect back to yourself after some crap happens. You want to reconnect and say, no, this is still part of my identity.
1: When you think of what is the most that I can do for this person within my capability, being present is at the top of the list and making them feel that everything that can be done for them is being done for them within your power. And within that same bucket is what you say externally when you're not with the patients. So that is right speech, which is Mm. not demeaning, not criticizing, not cynical towards the system. It's so easy to say the system sucks. The administrators suck. They're all a bunch of idiots. You can definitely vocalize frustrations, but if that is the constant drumbeat, then Mm -hmm. that is going to bring you
0: down. So true. I think there's like an element of community with complaining, right? It's cathartic on some level. But yeah. yeah, it can totally drag you down in that way because you aren't connecting to your higher ideals and, in that case, and you're maybe looking for a release and maybe it gets you away from that mindfulness and that the those healing techniques.
1: Sure keep it in. If you're frustrated, just get it out. But what happens is you get a group of like-minded people who are in the same situation and then everybody starts bitching and then it becomes ineffective. It becomes co-rumination. And right. you just, it's just, oh man. And then you get back to the shift and you get an email from admin and it just even has a hint of suck to it. And like, oh, that confirmation bias confirmed. These guys <laughs> suck. Yeah. Do ahead. Yes. Yeah, hey, this sucks. I- I'm super frustrated by it now what am I going to do about it? And you had mentioned compassion. We talk about this on the show a lot of times. Barry Curzon, the Dalai Lama's doctor, started this years ago on stimulus. And it is compassion, not empathy. Not that empathy is bad. Empathy is part of not being a psychopath. You can attune with other people. But when one is in this setting, compassion is a half step back. From empathy. Empathy is putting yourself in the shoes of that other person and you take on that frustration. And the more you put yourself in that person's shoes, then you get fatigued. And that actually lowers your resilience. Compassion is just a half step back from that. And it is the wish that just as I want to be happy and well and free of suffering, I want this person to be happy and well and free of suffering. But you do not own it. You are not the author of their story.
0: Now, mm. oh, that's so compelling. I think, how can we bring compassion to ourselves as individuals, as we recognize moral injury as it occurs? How can we use compassion to prevent moral distress from becoming moral injury? And then how can we take that compassion... And use it to affect change on an organizational level and build more resilient systems, not just more resilient individuals. If we're in a position of power, if you are an administrator and you can arm clinicians with appropriate resources, you can prioritize well being in your organization, you can display transparent decision making because. A lot of times people want that autonomy and that, and to feel like it's not a black box. If you can use metrics in an appropriate way, and if compassion can be the root of all of that, then I think we'll have less moral injury, even though we're sailing on rough waters, and that's what medicine is. I think it can bring a lot more joy to our daily work.
1: The organizational support is critical, and so often clinicians feel like the organization is their opponent mm. and not supportive. What's it from that dean article? I, I don't have to say again. You guys all read Federal Practitioner, but making clinician satisfaction a pri- financial priority—that that's organizational support. What's your quality of shift? There's a metric that means something. And transparency also helps with autonomy. CMI I work with what what do I do to make my hospital better? And so came up with this project that he he ended up calling the listening project, where he talked to every doc in his hospital and said, What's going well and what can we do better? That was it. That was the whole thing. And he just listened. He wasn't telling him like, hey, here's the initiatives that we're going to do. I just want to, I just want to know. And just that alone opened up that, hey, this is what admin is thinking. And this is also giving us some autonomy. And they are prioritizing us and giving us a chance to say, what are the resources that we need? All of those things, building a resilient system by that one act. And he, there's was maybe like 120 docs in the hospital. And he ended up interviewing every one of them in person. Good on you, dude. And just that and they said, oh, we're actually doing pretty good. This is a hospital who has some real servant leaders, and it's a, a unicorn. It says, we're doing pretty good, but the fact that you are asking us and that now we have this dialogue is awesome. And we feel, just with that question, so much support. Now, things did come up from that. They said, oh, here's some things that we can do to support clinicians and improve our culture. But it was just that listening. I wouldn't say it was free because his time was on salary, but it didn't take any kind of grant. Or a million dollar budget, or a new wing of the hospital, or having to go to this and that committee—it was just the CMO interviewing people.
0: I think having somebody in a position of power care about your opinion—that alone, super impactful. It sounds like he showed a lot of respect to the people that work with him. What a guy! I feel really fortunate. The people who are my administrators also work in our department and seem really well connected to the daily struggles, which in a lot of organizations, there might be eight individuals removed from those higher up decisions. And that's my direct leadership. And yeah, I think it just goes to show that time spent in that shared environment, understanding that environment. Understanding what your busy clinic is, or your busy emergency department, or your busy administrative life, whatever it is, just enhances that congruence.
1: Before we wrap up, I want to loop back to these individual strategies or things that you can do. We talked about, you, you feel the urge to withdraw, and that's a sign of trauma, is withdrawing. It's guilt and shame, All right, You want to curl into a ball. and. Acknowledging the injury, building community, collaborating, and talking about it. Compassionate empathy, agency. Don't demean the system. Or at least give it a minute. Give, go ahead. You get your minute of yelling and then-
0: Air, air your grievances. Air your, then- airing
1: of the grievances and then get on and then move on with it. Being absolutely present and doing the best that can be done with the patient that you can do something that you see written about quite a bit in this literature is the moral injury journal. And with these situations, one thing that can help with resilience is why I made the driveway debrief processing what happened in that day. And this can be a write it down journal. This can be a meditation. This can be just thinking about a process can be talking about it. But processing these things, which are so stressful, but doing this in a structured way. What went well today? What are actually the good things that came out? Because it can be easy to see the, the dry, gross, brittle, dirty grass in that lawn. What could have gone better? What could I do? Where do I have control? Where do I not have control? What can I let go of? And then having a way to release that, to release all of that pent up, Frustration, or if there is hopelessness, where can you find agency? We're pretty close to wrapping this up. And as I'm listening back through the pod, I I just feel that there's a piece missing, or at least something extra within the context of processing all this. And it brings up the concept of integration versus disintegration. For many, over time, the injury and the trauma starts to integrate into memory. Memory of the events shifts and it softens, it reframes. The regulation of our nervous system stabilizes or remains stable. And positive thoughts might even emerge like, hey, I made a difference today. For others, the nervous system gets stuck and they stay in the trauma response. I'll put a link to episode 46 in the show notes here. Where we got into very specific tools for processing trauma before, during, and after events. And we've been talking about being what you call stewards of moral injury from a do it yourself perspective. But sometimes you're just overtaken by it all. You're overtaken by the cumulative effects or even just a single event and it gets disintegrated. And it can be hard to break out of that by yourself. Sometimes we need outside help getting back to a nervous system that can freely modulate like it's supposed to in a state of equanimity and resilience. So if it feels like it's just not workable on your own, that DIY isn't cutting it, go pro and get a pro to work with you on this. Preferably a therapist, counselor, psychologist who has experience in trauma work. When you're thinking about all of this stuff, where is your mind going?
0: Really coming to the top of my mind is this young lady who was in the emergency department because of an asthma exacerbation again. And just taking a moment with her and listening to the fact that she couldn't afford her medication. She couldn't afford those medications that prevent that asthma exacerbation. By listening to her story, I felt moral injury from kind of lamenting the stressors in her life, lamenting the issues she had to navigate in a system that were not matching the ideal version of care for her, which would be she has these preventative medications and then she doesn't have to come to the emergency department and suffer as a result. And she was just such a compelling young lady that. I even though this was like one tiny part of my day, one tiny part of my ship, and she wasn't the sickest person in the department and all these things just that human connection that we had, I carried her story with me and I thought about her for days. So I think that's a way that 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 moral injury, that bruise it becomes something that you carry with you even if it's not something as dramatic as I had to give this ICU bed to this critically ill patient and not to this other patient or a patient had a terrible outcome or I had to provide this end-of-life care that really isn't what I think quality of life is for this patient. So I think sometimes just saying that these things can be small but meaningful when your expectation and reality don't match up.
1: Oh man, that was a small case asthma, right? Asthma exacerbation. But I'm I'm going back to the definition You're, you so you were perpetrating, you were failing to prevent and bearing witness to this thing yeah. that transgressed your deeply held moral beliefs and expectations. You were hitting the that's tri- your bad person. I feel like I'm shaming you, but you were part of the system. You hit the trifecta.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you were helping them, of course, but You maybe have this acute awareness that you're not getting at the root cause, which may be her financial situation or other social stressors and all these things that relate to social determinants of health, which I feel like times in this podcast, we talk about financial stressors, but I feel like social determinants of health and incongruence and ability to provide ideal care related to that. Is another huge bucket of moral distress because that tugs at our heartstrings. That's real life. That is what makes us feel close to our patients.
1: Kim Bombach, amazing as always. Thank you so much for coming on the show, taking the time, and just laying it all out there.
0: Every time I talk to you, I feel like I come away with feeling invigorated feeling a sense of positivity, feeling a sense of agency. And I hope that talking about moral injury, if that term pops in your mind, and you feel a little bit more understood on your next rough shift, and feel like you can use some of these tools in your toolkit to move forward, then that's a huge win. And I just so appreciate having the, the opportunity to talk with you and hash things out.
1: Always a treat. Thank you, Kim. And that is it for today. And you know what? If you love medicine, but you find the job itself leaves a lot to be desired, I work with docs in your shoes who feel the same way and help them extend their careers and have fun doing it. Can you imagine driving to your next shift with a feeling of stoke and excitement? And then when you leave for the day, you think to yourself, hey, that was pretty damn great. We can help get you there. And you can reach out to me at roborman.com. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.